And now, uh, let's share in God's good word from St. Luke, chapter 12. These are the very words of Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. How much money is enough? Oil tycoon John Rockefeller said it this way, just a little bit more. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Well, our founder in Methodism, John Wesley, while in his 20s, he had a deeply disturbing experience. Changed him forever. On a cold winter day, he was visited by a poor woman, and seeing her, he said, you seem half starved. Have you nothing to cover you but that thin linen gown? But she said, sir, this is all I have. So Wesley he reached in his pocket for money so she could buy a coat, but he found that he had hardly any left because he had just bought some pictures for his room. Wesley never forgot that moment and wrote these words. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor woman from the cold. O oh, justice, O oh, mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? And after this, Wesley committed himself to living as frugally as possible, so that he could give as much as possible. And as his income increased more and more from his college days, his standard of living, well, it did not. He simply gave more money away. And today, we're going to talk about how to live a simple life. How can we live this day in order to be ready for that day when we see Jesus face to face among the hungry, the thirsty, and those struggling in the cold? Jesus said, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now, while we may not know exactly how to help or what to do, we do know that we won't do any of it if we are in a hurry. Today we continue our sermon series, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. We are trying to slow down, and that is an important skill these days. A way of, it was a way of introduction, and all of our um, sermons up to this point are online. You can see them and, and catch up if you would like. Hurry, what we're talking about, is the great enemy of spiritual life. Will you say that with me? Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. And, and what is the difference between hurry and simply moving quickly? Well, hurry has some anxiety underneath it. Hurry is a state of frantic effort in response to inadequacy, fear, and guilt. Hurry are, is, it's around those times where you feel like, if I don't get this done, something bad's going to happen. Something bad to me or something bad to people I care about. This has been a problem in Western society, uh, really, for decades now. And psychiatrist Carl Jung puts it this way. Hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. So that was week 
week one. In week two, uh, we expanded on that theme and we learned this. Psychologists now talk about an epidemic of the modern world called hurry sickness. It's not just that we feel anxious and hurried. There's ac- it actually detracts from our health. And so um, cardiologist Meyer Friedman uh, studied this back in the 50s, and he said, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Well, that sounds like Edmond, Oklahoma, or wherever you might live. I know lots of people trying to do more and more with less and less. Maybe you fall in that category as well. So we found out in week two is this. If you want the peace of Christ, live the pace of Christ. Say that with me. If you want the peace of Christ, live the pace of Christ. And then last week we learned this. The desire is infinite, yet we humans are finite. And that's a problem because there's a gap between our desire and what we can actually accomplish. And so the result is restlessness. St. Augustine um, said it like this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that was all the way back in the three and four hundreds um, after Christ. So the answer to this restlessness in our soul is Sabbath, something that God did in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis um, and told us in, again in the Ten Commandments in both times that it's accounted, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. It's Sabbath that brings restfulness to our restlessness. You see, all of the commandments of God are for our good, for our health, for our welfare. And Walter Brueggemann, uh, the great biblical scholar, says it like this. People who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. When we keep the one day of Sabbath, the 24-hour period, sundown to sundown, all the other days are different as well, to the glory of God and, and to our health and welfare. So as a summary of the first three weeks, to defeat the devil of hurry, imitate Jesus' life of solitude, silence, and Sabbath. Really, so if you want to defeat the evil in your life, that, that evil of hurry, right? Imitate Jesus' life of solitude, silence, and Sabbath. This week, we come to simplicity. Uh, so solitude, silence, Sabbath, simplicity. And simplicity is simply choosing less stuff to gain more. More time, more space in your life, more and better relationships, and less stress. More peace. Well, how does this work? Well, oftentimes we think, well, if we just had a little bit more, like Rockefeller said. But here's the thing, friends. Oftentimes, more can really cause you a lot of headaches. Uh, This is one of many bookshelves uh, that I have in my office. And they are just jam-packed with books, so much so that I have to start putting books on top of my books. And I know uh, for myself, I have lost days of my life simply looking for a quote in a book or looking for a book and not knowing exactly which shelf it's on or where I left it last. And the more books I have, the harder that is. It's harder to find actually what I want to find when I have more to sift through. Dallas Willard puts it this way around simplicity and frugality. He says, In frugality we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or our hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. Spiritual mothers and fathers have known for a long time that wealth while it can be really beautiful and help people up and out of poverty, 
it can also be very difficult to live with. It can be difficult to continue to focus on God when we have more and more stuff that we then have to maintain and keep up with and worry about losing. And it it is getting harder, at least in America, for sure. Think about this. American homes now are more than twice the size they were in the 1950s, while our families are half the size. So we have houses twice the size of, of what our parents or grandparents had, and yet we have smaller families. The um, you know, square footage around each person, well, it's grown dramatically. So is loneliness, by the way. But let's not over-spiritualize uh, poverty or being poor. No, poverty is really hard. It's really, really hard. And a middle-class life, well, that's a great gift when you have enough. And uh, many studies have said that it's about $75,000 uh, is about the right amount of money um, that people need to have basic health care and food um, and a place to live uh, in America. Once you get past that, your returns diminish. doesn't really matter if you're making seventy-five, dollars $85,000, $95,000, $105,000. It's really all kind of relative. And as a matter of fact, some studies even say that your happiness starts to go down because you have more and more stuff to worry about. You see, each and everything you purchase costs you not only money, but also your time. So you could say this, the more stuff you have, the more hurried you are because you, the more stuff you have to keep up with. So here's a really important question for you and for me. Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Many of you know that I am a dog owner. I have a wonderful dog. His name is Peanut. He is 13 years old. And he cost me a fortune. I've got to feed him. I've got to groom him. If we go out of town, I've got to board him. This little guy, as cute as he is, he cost a fortune for me. And we love him. He's worth it. I mean, we're in relationship. But let's, let's make sure that when he was a cute little puppy and he looked up at us, we had no idea what he was going to cost us in terms of time and money. He's brought wonderful things into our life, but it'll cost you time and money. And so that's, that's just an example. Some of you, um, last year, uh, about this time, actually, just uh, uh, when it started to get cold, started to freeze, you know what I heard people talking about? What am I going to do with my pool? Particularly uh, when we had that terrible cold snap and things started to freeze and they were worried about, you know, is everything gonna, am I going to have to replace my pool? Is everything going to freeze up? Is it going to bust open? And there was a lot of worry and concern about this thing that was supposed to bring you joy and happiness and peace. Less stress is what you're hoping for, and at least through last January and February, perhaps you had a lot more stress. Or perhaps, like me, you love a nice lawn, but sometimes the lawn owns us too. After you weed it and you fertilize it and you make it look great, then it grows faster, you water it, it grows even faster. And then so maybe, you know, you get so old or so tired, then you have to pay somebody to mow it for you. And then there again, the more lawn you have, the more it costs you in terms of time or in terms of your money. And then there's the old joke, well, do you own a boat? Do you own a boat, friends? Little dumpling here, isn't she cute? But she's on block, she's not running, she's going for maintenance. Yep, that's, I had a friend of mine tell me this year, they said, you know, a boat is merely a hole through which you throw your money into the lake. That's what a boat is. If you have a boat, I hope it's running, I hope you're having a great time. So here's the question for you, friends. How does the increasing number of possessions limit you to a particular, well, location? 
you're offered a different job or something like that, and, and you're like, no, you know, I really like my home. I really like my yard. I really, I like the stuff that I have here. I don't know how I would move it. Or uh, maybe it does limit you, not just in location, but in your job itself, because you're offered a promotion, but you don't really know how to take it because you wouldn't know what to do with all your stuff. Or maybe there's even another thing you'd like to do in your life. Maybe you'd like to retire, but you don't know how to live without that income. Because you do have a dog, and you do have a pool, and you do have a lawn, and you do have a boat, or whatever it is, or an RV that you have to, you know, or, or a plane that you have to put in a hangar, whatever it is, if you change jobs, you might not have the same income, and you might not be able to keep all your stuff. And you know what all that leads to? How does the increasing number of possessions limit you to a particular life? Because how you spend your time is your life. And then we come to a really important question as people who say that we follow Jesus. Is there anything? Is there anything for which you would give up all that you own? Is there anything in your life for which you would give up all that you own? And if the answer is no, that's a problem. Because our life is not about the abundance of our possessions. It's about our relationships with the people we love and the God we love. Is there anything for which you would give up all that you own? Because that's exactly what Jesus asked of the first disciples. And he might ask of you and of me. Our founder, John Wesley, again, on money, he says it like this. Money is an excellent gift of God, answering the noblest ends. In the hands of his children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment for the naked, a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. The way Dallas Willard says is that when it comes to money, it's better for the Christians to have it than the crooks, unless it makes you crooked. I think he's right about that. See, are we willing to simplify our living so that others may simply live? We know that there are people in need. We know there are people who are hungry. We know there are people who need clothes and shelter while we live in extravagance. How might we live more simply so that our brothers and sisters could simply live? How do you do it? Well, the first thing we do is that we remove everything that distracts you from what matters most. When you look at buying something and you think, well, is this help me grow closer to God and others? Or is it really just another distraction in my life? Let me ask you a question. How many coffee mugs do you need? How many coffee mugs do you have? We all have a coffee mug or two in our life. It might not be that. It might be something much more expensive. And you think about all the things, all the time, all the people you might have helped if you'd have made a different choice about those things or, or if you do in the future make a different choice about those things. So what Wesley says about how to actually live into a simple life, how to live a life in right relationship with money is first, do honest hard work. Get after it. Gain all you can is how he said it. He said the first and great rule of Christian wisdom with respect to money, gain all you can by honest industry. It does matter how you make it. Use all possible diligence in your calling. Lose no time. Do it as soon as possible. No delay. Gain all you can. And then the second is really no extravagance. He says, save all you can. Now, in Western day today, we think, oh, save, like I need to go put it in the bank or invest it. No, that's not what he's saying. Um, the language is a little tricky from, you know, the 1700s in England to today. What he means is this. 
The second rule of Christian prudence is save all you can. Do not throw the precious talent into the sea. Do not throw it away in idle expenses, which is just the same as throwing it into the sea. I I wonder what John Wesley would do if he went to Burger King or some other fast food restaurant and he watched us get a really super big cup when there are free refills. When he knows you could get a small cup for less money and refill it three times, all you got to do is get up and, and go get you some. It's free refills. Why do you pay more for something that you could pay less for? Is it because we're too proud to have somebody think or that we're too cheap? or we're, what, it, what is it about that? Why do we choose to pay more for things simply because we're afraid of what it might look like when we could take the difference and actually give it away to make the world a better place? So give your life and resources to doing all the possible good you can. Give all you can. So Wesley says, gain all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. But let not any man imagine that he has done anything by simply gaining and saving all he can, Wesley says. If he were to stop here, all this is nothing, he says. If he does not point all this at a farther end, add the third rule to the two preceding, having first gained all you can and secondly saved all you can, then say it with me, give all you can. Yourself, your resources, your life, to the things of God, to the world, to the hurting, to the poor, to your family and friends who need you to show up for them with your time, your resources, your life. And why is this so important? Well, for a lot of people, things aren't just things, they're identities. A number of years ago, uh, there were a number of uh, commercials, actually a whole series of them, uh, that I really enjoyed. It was between uh, people who say that I'm a Mac or I'm a PC. Maybe you remember them. I can't show you the video for copyright reasons, but uh, you may remember them. You can, you can Google it. It's, it's kind of funny. And people really identified with a Mac or a PC, right? Microsoft or Apple, which person are you? Are you an iPhone person or are you an Android person, Right? Are you a cat person? Are you a dog person? Whatever it is, we have identities that we identify with. And if we're not careful, the things we buy actually begin to form us. Oh, no, I'm an iPhone guy. Oh, I'm a Mac guy. And that that says something to the people around me. And my identity is not so much in Christ as it is in a certain way of life, a certain way of working in the world. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot. Now notice, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth. It's not that you should not. It's not do not. It's cannot. It's not possible. It's a law of the universe. You cannot give your life to both God and your own wealth, pleasure, desire. It's disastrous. You simply can't do both. You have to choose. You have to choose. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's not possible, he's saying. And you might say, well, well, great. I'm, I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about this. I don't even know why you're preaching this sermon. Well, hold on a minute. Let's say, for example, that, that maybe you work a minimum wage job. You make $7 an hour, roughly, maybe a little more. And if you make minimum wage, you are one of the top 7.8% of earners in the entire world. If you take the population as a whole and you look at what people make, you are one of the wealthiest people in the world. You're top 10%. 
even if you're working a minimum wage job at a fast food restaurant or any other thing. And around Edmond, um, household income is well over $100,000. But here's the thing, even if you made half that, if you make $50,000 per year, that would place you in the top 0.31% of people in the world. You're in the top 1%. Now you hear people talk about the top 1% all the time in the United States. And you may not be in that um, category. I certainly am not. But when you, you know, when you benchmark yourself against the world and not simply the people that live around you, you are in the top 1%. Actually, the top 0.31% of people in the world. Friends, we are rich. Every person who has a TV or a computer or some way of, on their phone listening to this, if you can get this um, video, you're rich. It really is that simple. For example, the money you make today, if you were trying to make that same money on the continent of Africa and Zimbabwe, it would take you 49 years to make the exact same money you make here in America today. It's 49 to 1. So again, the scripture says this, As for those who in the present age are rich, us, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Friends, that is actually where the poor have a leg up on the wealthy, on the rich, because they know that their hope is in God. They're not fooled to think, well, oh, you know, riches are going to help me out. No, they know very clearly that their help is from God in ways, quite frankly, that many of us do not or we don't remember. Scripture goes on. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. First Timothy is talking straight to us. Friends, don't miss out on the life that God has for you, the life that really is life. Now, focusing on more than we need it hurts our relationships with friends and family, the poor and God. Have you ever found yourself trying to stay away from someone that you know is about to ask you for money? Because you don't want to give it. That's a part of the human condition. And part of the reason we don't want to give it is because we might have our eye on something else that we want, a desire that we have that, quite frankly, more than likely, we don't need. It's simply a want. So Jesus actually uh, has an entire story around this. Uh, in the Gospels. It goes like this. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine that? That somebody actually comes up to Jesus. They come up to you and they're like, Hey, you're, you're a teacher. You're, you know, you're a blessed rabbi. Make them do that for me, Jesus. Make them give me my part of the inheritance of the family. Totally focused on the money. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbiter over you? He's like, I'm Oh, I'm not doing that. And he said to them, Jesus did, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's what that guy was about. He was trying to be greedy, trying to get Jesus to bless his greediness. Jesus said, no, no, no. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable, Jesus did. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, well, I'm going to do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what does God say? You fool. You fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. No one, no one, not one of us knows when we're going to die. We simply don't know that. That's, that's not ours to know. 
And he says, and the things you have prepared, sir, whose will they be? You, you do all this stuff, and, and, and you put it all in these barns, and you store it up, and you secure it. Who's, who's that going to be? You're not going to enjoy any of that. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, because all of this is true, because it's true you don't know when you're going to die, and it is folly to put your hope and health and wealth into things and not trusting in God. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry. What you eat or what what about your body or what you're going to wear. He says, And do not keep striving. Friends, slow down. You don't have to strive. Don't keep striving for what you are to eat and what you're to drink. And do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive. Not, not the people of God that strive. People outside of the faith of God that strive after all these things. And your Father knows that you need them. So trust Him. Instead, strive for His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Everything you need, friends. John Mark Comer puts it like this. He says, we worry about what we worship. And if you worship money, it will eat you alive. We worry about what we worship. We think about what we worship. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if your treasure goes to the poor, you'll care about the poor. If your treasure goes to helping those in need, it'll be around those in need. If your treasure goes to the things of God, it'll be towards God. And if the things of your treasure are for yourself, guess what? Your heart's going to go about yourself. And it's a very lonely place to live. And this is why, because most often, stuff equals less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, and less peace. The more you have, the more you have to maintain, the more you have to store, the more stuff often equals less time, less financial freedom, right? You have have less margin there, less generosity because you have less to give, and less peace because you're worried about it. You see, Jesus' teachings, friends, they're not merely right and just. They are the best way to live, the best way to live a joyful life. And there's nothing in this life apart from God that can satisfy our desires. Not one thing. So give your life, your attention, your treasure to God and let him take care of you and the world. So our action steps, this covers all four weeks. This is what we've been doing for the last three weeks and this week. So the first week, we talked about your to-don't list. Really, what can you delete Delay, delegate, or do now. I really recommend a to-don't list. It'll change your life. And then, once you start to realize you actually can create some margin in your life, take a Sabbath, a real digital Sabbath. Leave your phone in the car or turned off, whatever you need to do, so you can actually have peace in your life, joy in your life, time with your kids, time with your parents, time with your siblings, time with your friends, without the interruption and distraction of your phone. And then, to help with this in particular, this week, we did this last week, but it's also good for this week, go an entire day without buying anything. Uh, We record these on Wednesday, and today, Chantel and I have spent zero dollars. She made me a nice turkey sandwich. It was awesome, and I've been at work all day. I haven't left campus, and and I won't until tonight, and I will not spend a dime. And it feels great. feels great. And then, for this week, This will help us out. Before you buy something, ask this question. What is the true cost of this item in time and money? Will this item cost me more than I think it will? 
How will I have to maintain this item? How will I have to feed this item? How will I have to take care of this item? How will I have to store and maintain this item? How do I protect this item? You see, you can also ask yourself, how much time is this going to cost me? Is this something that's actually going to give me more time in my life? Or is it going to distract more time out of my life? Think about what you purchase. And don't do any impulse buying. Simply think about it, pray about it, and ask God, is this something that you want in my life? And if you haven't been asking that question, or you don't want to ask that question, then you have to ask yourself, do you really want something in your life that God won't bless? That doesn't make any sense at all. So when you ask those questions, will it cost me more time? Or will it give me more time? What is the real cost of this item? You can know that you're on the path to the ruthless elimination of hurry. You can do it. So, friends, take a deep breath. Put your cell phone away. Let your heart slow down. And let God take care of the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, slow me down until I walk with you. Then keep me there in your loving presence. Amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.